0: And this is Tom.
1: And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. Tom, what do we got today?
0: Today, with all the recent events that's been going on in the uh, country in 2020, and everyone's saying how 2020 is a year they can't wait to get over and how crazy it is, we're going to look back at another year that was um, just as crazy and had just as much as major events that shaped the world, and that would be 1968. So
1: 1968 was one of those years, uh, you know, infamous years in American history that a lot of people tend to want to forget. Uh, It seemed that nothing, absolutely nothing went right in nineteen sixty eight for our nation, um
0: yeah. as well the world. A, but definitely a black eye for the United States that whole year.
1: Absolutely. And recent times, you know, in the past few months with corona starting, I actually see a lot of comparisons being made in the media between sixty eight and, and um twenty twenty. The Atlantic just came out a couple months ago with an article they called this, this the worst year in modern American history? Comparing twenty twenty to nineteen sixty eight. So, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't we uh, try to compare 68 and kind of talk about
0: the yeah, that's other year? That's that what we do, right, Pete? That's what we do. History it. repeats itself, and it's definitely uh, repeating in a lot of ways. I know you had your little article um, – not, not little, I apologize, but your article that was uh, talking about how the, with the pandemic and the pandemic of 1919, yep. right? You can find that online, guys. Just Google Peter Zablocki. You'll find a whole bunch of cool stuff. But, uh, but yeah, um... I did have an
1: article that compared it to um, – <laughs> yeah,
0: but 1968 wait, wait, wait. is another one where, um, although you don't have a pandemic exactly, there's a, a lot of political turmoil. Probably up to that point, the most political turmoil you've seen in the country since the Civil War, I would yeah, say. Yeah,
1: but uh, you know, you don't have a pandemic, but you have thousands of Americans dying. Yeah, uh, dying for another reason. Yeah, for, no, yeah, yeah, for Vietnam. Vietnam.
0: It's really in what we'll get into, but I'm sure that's really the year. This is the year, 1968, where that anti-Vietnam movement really starts to take hold. It's really when the public starts to turn against The Vietnam War, up until that, it was all pro-Vietnam War for the most part. Like I'm generalizing there. But really after what we'll talk about um, here, what happens in 1968, that really starts to change.
1: Yeah, so you know what? Why don't we start with Vietnam? I'm thinking maybe we could provide some um, context. So I was going to kind of start talking about just Vietnam up to that point. And also talk about the civil rights movement up to that point to kind of create a that's context, right, create yeah, context. Yeah, yeah, a little
0: bit of information here.
1: We could start with Vietnam, which is an extremely divisive war in American history.
0: Yeah, it's one, that's one thing still being I, it's still being talked about. Like as far as like what's the narrative on? It? Like what do you really want to teach? Because it's 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 a it's when you look at it, it's not in. If you want to look at it, like militarily, did we accomplish our objective? No, but did we lose any battles? No. So it's, exactly. it's it was very it's very. Complicated and it's still a lot of like the consequences that still take place there in Vietnam and abroad are still major from this conflict. Yeah.
1: And also keep in mind that the wars prior to it, you know, when you have World War II and even Korea uh, to a large extent were very patriotic wars. And people, when you know they were drafted to go in, kind of took it as all right, it's my duty and it's time yeah. to go. And this is what's different about Vietnam, Vietnam changed, is that, yeah, yeah it
0: just, just completely it hasn't been a draft since now. Vietnam. That's not a coincidence. Yeah, not a coincidence. That's and actually, not a
1: coincidence. when And the first war that we went into afterwards was, uh, you know, Persian Gulf War, nineteen ninety one, and you know, President H W Bush actually said, "This will not be another Vietnam again." Actually, always want to avoid. They always
0: say we don't want this to be Vietnam, like everything's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, right? We don't want this to be another Vietnam, even though it's actually been longer than Vietnam at this point. Yep. But yeah, what we're going to be talking about today is really when that kind of changes. It actually happens in uh, January, so it's a good way to start, right? The beginning mm-hmm. of 1968 is also one of these events where um kind of shifts the narrative on the Vietnam War in the U.S.
1: Kind of just before you get into that, Tom, which is, again, very important. You know, we need to bring this idea that the Vietnam War was very much a working class war. You got a deferment. You got a college deferment from being drafted if you went to college, at least initially, and that kind of, we'll get into why that changed a little bit later. But most of the people that attended college at this time were white and financially well off. I mean, statistics, you know, don't lie in that sense. So most of the people that fought in Vietnam were lower class whites and minorities. About 80% of American soldiers came from lower economic levels.
0: That's the song, right? Fortunate fortunate son, right?
1: Yep. Therefore, making Vietnam a working class And because of that, because African Americans were again, civil rights movement is kind of splintering at this point, which we'll get into as well in context. A lot of the people that are being drafted are African American and young, and
0: That's what I mean, too. very young,
1: very young. Um, oh yeah, there's these there are kids. It average age what
0: nineteen twenty I think was yep. like the average age. Absolutely. It said that African-Americans
1: accounted for about 20% of all American combat deaths, despite the fact that they're only made up 10% of the entire U.S. population. MLK, very, very known civil rights leader at the time, kind of holding back, not talking about against Vietnam. He doesn't want to talk about Vietnam. He doesn't want to do it. And in 67, so right before the events that we're about to talk about, he finally breaks down and he has to address the fact that so many people and so many African-Americans are dying in Vietnam. You know, I have a quote from him where he says, We are taking the young black men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Harlem. We have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to stem together in the same schools. You know, that kind of brings it, you know, the picture and how divisive this is becoming there is a humongous movement that's growing that's essentially an anti-war movement and it starts off kind of really in colleges and again this is just to provide context of when you know things kind of get really messy in 68 so you have the new left movement and you have the students for democratic society and they kind of were against this idea that corporations, they thought that corporations and large government institutions had taken over America, and they wanted greater individual freedom. Sound ironic. Familiar? Sounds familiar? Yeah, ironic, right? Ironic.
0: Exactly, yeah. This is the birth of all that stuff, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, these guys are kind of going against this big government and against these corporations and kind of fighting for the little guy. Um, and it starts off with campus activism. So dress codes, curfews, dormitory regulations, stuff like that. But then the protest kind of shifts, and it shifts into... You know, kind of just overall against, you know, you have young people going against government policies and government as a whole and establishment. The protests grow and grow. And then in February of 1966, Johnson's administration kind of changes the deferment for college students uh, trying to get out of the draft. And it required students to be in good academic standing in order to be granted a deferment. And that kind of led to campuses around the country just erupting in protests. March to Washington in '65, twenty thousand protesters. Another march in November of that same year, '65, in Washington, uh, also drew thirty thousand. So it's just—it seems like when you put the TV on, if you're not looking at pictures of the war and death and.
0: And that's what was on TV every night too. Like the Vietnam War was a war that was televised. They would actually do it almost like today, if you were like a a sporting event and they give like the score, they would give like, you'd watch the news and they give like a score, like our body count, how many of our soldiers died, how many Viet Viet Cong were killed. You know, and that's kind of what we're going in here because every day they're seeing that there's more and more of these Viet Cong Vietnamese soldiers being killed. Oh, we have to be winning this war. We have to be over. And they're telling the American public any day now this war is going to be over. It's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. The boys are going to be coming home. And then 1968 changes that narrative. Yep. Well, on January 30th, 1968, the North Vietnamese launched what becomes known as the Tet Offensive against the United States and South Vietnamese. And it's, um, like I said, it was kind of signified the beginning of the end of the U.S. involvement. This is when the protests really started to take off after this. The Viet Cong, which are the Vietnamese communists, they coordinate an attack by over 85,000 of them, coordinate this a massive attack on 36 major cities in South Vietnam and it caught the U S led forces totally by surprise. And it's because it happened during the Vietnamese holiday of Tet, which is almost like their new year. Mm. And normally it was one of these, um, was a lunar new year. It was one of these times where like both sides kind of had this like unofficial ceasefire. Mm -hmm. So they really weren't expecting an attack. And the reason what, and eventually the U S they do take back all of these, um, the towns and all the city, all the land quickly. that they Very lost
1: quickly, actually very yeah. quickly.
0: But but showing this on the news and like if we're about to beat them, how are they able to mass this sort of attack? How, huh. And if they're supposed to be, if they're supposed to be backwards and not know what's going on, how do they coordinate? Yeah, they said
1: a bunch of villagers, you know, size. running around. They yeah. couldn't, and all of a sudden they coordinate. You know, like you're saying, Tom, they coordinate an attack. You know, like yeah. so it's it, a it narrative, a and yeah, the, the narrative is kind of like, false.
0: The people at home are like, there's no way. They're like, is the government lying to us? Like remember, this is the 1960s. You have some of that, but it's still that whole like the government would never do that. that you know, the, the Watergate hasn't happened yet. You know, so that's really what makes people uh, starts become aware of the government. I'm sure we'll do something on that in the future. Yeah. But it's really like I mean, so what we're being told isn't necessarily the truth, and that's some. It's a real wake up call, like you said, it's, and it happens first at the colleges, but then it starts to get into a lot of the mainstream America too during this time because they're just like this war is not going to be over. We've been in the we've, you know, we've had troops there since the 50s, really, right? Yeah. And they're just like, and it really started to escalate more with Johnson, but now they're just like, this is just crazy. Like this war is not going to be over. More of these young boys are gonna come home kill you know, in body bags or maimed, which is a something that we can get to another time, I'm sure. Don't waste time on yeah. it today. But remember, that was the Viet Cong strategy. They didn't necessarily want to kill you, they wanted to maim you. They wanted to send these boys home missing arms, missing legs, so that that would scare the other people and scare the mothers. That was what they would say. Like the mothers aren't going to want to send their sons to war to come home missing arms and legs. So that was like their strategy.
1: Think about it that, you know, you have a very similar to what we have today is just complete distrust in government and not just distrust, but almost like a disgust in government. In October of 67, again, so we're getting closer. You know, now uh, Ted Offensive happens in January of 68. So almost like 68 just starts off bad. But right before in October of 67, there was a demonstration at Washington's Lincoln Memorial that drew 75,000 protesters right? There were speeches. There was like 30,000 demonstrators at the end of this decided to lock arms and march in the Pentagon. So they do, they march in the Pentagon. And once they get there, you know, they kind of broke past the military that was protecting the Pentagon and they mounted the steps and they were met by, you know, tear gas and clubs and about 1500 demonstrators were injured and at least 700 arrested. What you see today is essentially happening here. You have a military hitting protesters and using tear gas against protesters there's this distinction between well are we talking about writers or are we talking about protesters is there a difference and there is a difference and that's kind of what's coming out at this time specifically becomes intensified because of ted offensive like government is not necessarily honest with us um new york times did a poll and we have to mention new york times is kind of um more
0: liberal More liberal yeah yeah even then especially now
1: but um, so they did a, a poll right before the Tet Offensive, and it showed that 28% of Americans called themselves doves, meaning that they were pro peace. And uh, 56% claimed to be hawks. Well, after the Tet Offensive, a new poll was taken about a month or so after, and both sides tallied about 40%. So things started to definitely change. And one of the people that kind of brought that home, like you were saying, Tom, this idea of on the news and seeing if you watch documentaries on vietnam you have actual journalists that are literally there's bullets yeah. flying around them and they're yeah. like walking up to soldiers that are shooting like shooting literally in the middle of you. battle and they're like how do you feel right now how do how, you want to talk about it and the guy's like i'd rather be home when you start shooting again you know it's it, it's surreal how real this was in the news every day and then walter cronkite who everyone uh, he was you know the most respected journalist probably in American history. That's when he goes on TV after Tet offensive. And he's like, yeah, we're not winning this war. And that's when people are like, what's happening. And this is, you know, 1968. And we should also mention that 1968 is the year that the United States had the most soldiers in Vietnam out of all the years and the most deaths in Vietnam. So, you know, by 68, there was about 536,000 troops in Vietnam, the highest number out of all the years between 63 and 72. Again, just kind of showing how you have 68 being that pivotal year. So, right, so next thing that's kind of happening here because of Vietnam, another thing you have going here is there's some assassinations that happen. Again, before we get into the assassinations, let's talk a little bit about the civil rights movement. Up to that point, you know, because the civil rights movement changes around sixty between sixty five and sixty eight. Uh, primarily, it changes because a lot of young African Americans, although the civil rights act is passed, civil rights act of uh, nineteen sixty four that ultimately ends segregation, schools are desegregated. There is a big conversation between de facto segregation and the jury segregation,
0: right? Oh, the basically, yeah. So you're basically the idea is basically, yeah, it's illegal, but it's still basically happening. Yep. So, even though that they're going to acknowledge, right, it's illegal, yeah, we're not, we're not, there's no white and black water fountains and stuff like that. They're still finding, when I say they, people who want to, who want to segregate, want to keep their races separate, they're still finding ways, whether it's things like uh, poll taxes, which eventually become yep. outlawed, right? Or you're going to have those literacy tests, or you're going to have
1: cell neighborhoods, just which for are people in the I mean, I try to give them to my oh, yeah. students. I'm like, guys, you know, like if you
0: they, they, take they this wouldn't pass. Yeah.
1: And they're like, they what? Have. I mean, it was, they were not meant. For a person to pass. no, they And
0: really, they weren't even really giving them to the white voters, either. They were just giving them to the, min- to the minority voters. Absolutely. So, uh,
1: so the fact of segregation kind of really intensified after the African-Americans migrated to northern cities uh, during and after World War II. And this kind of began what became known as white flight. So you have white people that chose to essentially move to the suburbs as opposed to stay in the cities. And then what happened is cities became predominantly African-American and suburbs became predominantly white. And a lot of the money that was being spent on businesses, local businesses and things like that were, were going to the suburbs. You know, they were going away from the cities, which really kind of by 1960s, it created the, you know, Really, the urban centers were decaying. You know,
0: there were slums. Well, they... Yeah, what you have is then the jobs are leaving. Yeah, So the money's not being spent, like you were saying. And schools, so that's even not schools, happening. right? Because the white kids weren't school, going to the city schools. The, school, the schools are are not getting the funding. So what's going to happen is you get that urban, like you were saying, and then there's no job. So a lot of the youth then what that happens, they stay join gangs. They resort to crime. That sort of really starts to take flight. Drugs become big.
1: You know, so you're looking at this and this, this, this is another thing that kind of brings us to where You, you have a lot of tension now between yes. white police and African American inner city, you know, population.
0: Again, sound familiar.
1: If we just right. don't say
0: this is 1968, we, right, we, we could be talking 20 about 20. today, right? You are talking about yesterday. Yes, exactly.
1: You know, in my mid 1960s, uh, there's a lot of clashes between white authority, uh, police officers and black ci- um, civilians, and it kind of spread like wildfire. So in New York City, July 1964, there was an encounter with a white police officer and an African-American teenager, and it resulted in the death of the 15-year-old teenager. And this sparked a massive race riot in central Harlem. Within a year, August 11th, 1965, just five days after President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law... You have one of the worst riots in the nation's history ever—the Watts Riot in Los Angeles. Thirty-four people killed, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property destroyed. Then in '66, you see even more racial disturbances, and in '67 alone, riots and violent clashes take place in more than a hundred cities. Again, like almost like looking in a mirror, 2020,
0: 68. And why do you think that's the case, though, Pete? You think it's a case of like just history repeating itself? It's a case of like you know what was going on in the '60s, like we're talking about today was 68 was the problem just not fixed i don't think you yeah, know, that's, like, that's honestly yeah, my think. i think it was kind of just kind of brushed over like kind of put like a little band-aid over it but it wasn't enough to actually well think about fix it. it
1: yeah by, by 2000 right 28 percent of blacks in the south and 50 percent of blacks in the northeast were attending schools with fewer than 10 yeah. percent whites you know things haven't really changed it's de facto versus the jury segregation yet yeah, by law we're not segregated
0: but in fact, you know,
1: people are segregated. And socioeconomically, yeah. they are
0: segregated. Yeah, socioeconomically, that's, that's the big thing they're talking about. It's a socioeconomic factor um, that they're just brought up. They just don't have that same, the chances, basically, like yeah. this, or the same background. And, and that leads to
1: frustra- frustration. And even led to, you know, when you have this urban violence erupting, it, it also leads to the splintering of the civil rights movement itself. And that's this is where the idea of black power is born. People believe that, Yes, segregation is over and MLK was successful. However, he was unable, this nonviolence, a lot of young African Americans believe that this nonviolence didn't really lead to equality, you know, and that's where Malcolm X comes in. And that's where Stokely Carmichael comes in. And that's where Black Panthers come in. A lot of people think that Black Panther, you know, Black Panthers, oftentimes, if you look at pictures, and you know, they dressed in black leather jackets, black berets, and sunglasses, and they, you know, they had guns with them, and they followed police cars. But ultimately, the organization started in inner cities. Uh, two reasons: one, to counter um, police brutality, and the other thing is, these guys were about. I mean, they had soup kitchens. The Black Panthers, you know, they had you know, like lunch programs. The idea was to kind of really help, I guess, unfairness towards young African-Americans. Um, in 68, while this stuff is happening, we have these riots, the Black Panther movement is kind of taken away from MLK. And MLK actually kind of objected to the Black Power movement. You know, he believed that preaching violence could only end in grief. That was his view. He's planning to lead this Poor People's March in Washington, D.C., but he never really gets to that. So in 68... What happens, Tom?
0: Well, then April 4th of uh, 1968, uh, Martin Luther King is actually visiting Memphis, Tennessee. And while there, he's standing on the second floor balcony of the Lauren Motel when he is struck by a bullet around 6 uh, o'clock p.m. And he was only 39 years old uh, when time this happened. He was rushed to a hospital where, he, was, where he, he never regained consciousness. Then about an hour later, he was uh, pronounced dead. Obviously, you know, the man that was found guilty of murdering him was James O'Reilly. He was captured shortly afterwards. Um, the fingerprints are traced back to his gun.
1: He admitted to he it did, at first, and then he, he was like.
0: To first recanted, and I was doing research on this a while ago, and there's I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories, but there's members of King's own family that I don't believe that um, James O'Reilly was a murderer. Yeah,
1: I think King's son met with him yeah. in jail. Yeah, he's like, he's like, he's like, he didn't kill my dad.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or he does eventually. He. Um, James Earl Wright always tried to withdraw his uh, guilty plea and get a new trial, never did. And yeah. he did die in prison in 1998. And that's something that we can look at another time.
1: Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create. And grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.
0: With with that, but um, you were talking about four at like the riots, and that's where one of the things like, obviously King, famous individual, civil rights leader. But his death, when the news of his death starts to spread around the country, it actually leads to riots, which is Absolutely. something that King would have not wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does happen, particularly in Washington D.C., there's massive riots. Um, that, oh yeah, uh, it was
1: like twenty thousand crowds of twenty thousand overwhelmed. You know, like thirty one hundred yeah. police members. You know, federal troops are like twelve thousand federal they troops
0: are called uh, in. The downtown area of Washington D.C. was just uh, destroyed. They, it was burnt to the ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, they literally they brought in the third infantry to guard the White House. Burned down buildings. Damages in Washington D.C. reached like twenty seven million dollars. You know, in nineteen sixties money.
0: And this happened by 11 p.m. the day he was killed. Like, it wasn't like it happened day. It was like the same day he was killed as news spread. Man, this is the 60s. So, you know, there is like TV and, you know, news wires. It's not as fast as it would be today. But the news does spread rather quickly by 11 p.m. There's riots, not just in D.C., but 30 cities across the country, major cities across the country are rioting for their upset. Like, this was our man. This is our voice. He's preaching nonviolence. And now he's getting us. And now he's, he's he was shot and killed.
1: Yeah. And again, very similar to what you see today. I mean, just beyond comprehensible damage and, and people are frustrated, people are upset, again, you have the military that comes out, you know, the government comes out to fight against people because now there's, again, that distinction, as I mentioned before, like, are we talking people that are protesting or are we talking people that are rioting? You know, there's different, again, millions of dollars in damages. And it's not just Washington, D.C. Because, I mean, after MLKs, it was like a 100 cities exploded, you know, in flames yeah. Baltimore was one of the big ones. Chicago, Kansas City, Washington, D.C., obviously, as we said before, 1968. People by that point are like, you know, it's April. It's only April until like 1968. And then um, that they're not, you know, we're not done in that year with assassinations. And the next assassination um, happens
0: on uh, June 5th, right? Yeah. When um, R.F. Kennedy... Robert F. Kennedy, the younger brother of JFK, just a few years after his brother was assassinated, um, he's running for president. He's um, – well, he's he's going to be running for president. Yeah. And he was actually assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Saran right? Saran. Um, opened fire, hitting Kennedy in the head and back. He collapsed, was rushed to the hospital, underwent brain surgery, and he was pronounced dead the next day. He was only 42.
1: Yep. i think he split, he it, looked at his wife last one of the last words was like she said, yeah. is it like is it is it bad
0: or something like that yeah is it bad yeah because he wasn't sure and it was that recently there was something with the um he was like a bus boy um i remember seeing something uh on the anniversary of his death this year the bus boy that was like He he like caught as he was falling yeah they brought him to the kitchen to like what was going on? Because what's surprising about this, and we'll get into more of it in a minute. But the surprising about this one is that Robert Kennedy, as famous as he was, he didn't have any security with them. They didn't get um, Secret Service protection yet. Now, like if you're a viable presidential candidate, you get protected. You have Secret Service protection. They didn't have this. So this guy just walked right up to him right after the speech. Sirhan Sirhan just walked right up to him and opened fire. And I don't think they ever really got like a real reason why he did it. Yeah. And also like, Sirhan, this is
1: very important too because. You know, and this kind of brings us to our last, not our last thing, but another thing in this 1968, this is important because RFK, at least to the young people and the Democrats, was seen as yeah. as hope, you know? Yeah. Um, he was
0: Kennedy's brother. He served with Kennedy, right? He's the attorney yeah. general. He was, he, this guy was going to be, all right, now we're getting another Kennedy back in the White House, right? Yep. Because most people say, if he ran, he, he had a really good chance of winning, just based on the popularity factor. The Factor that, you know, JFK was still so popular. He was going to kind of like ride that a little bit. He was a smart guy. Um, You know, he was well-liked. He was well-liked in the party. So he had a really good chance of winning. He was
1: also running on the idea. I mean, he was running the idea of equality and civil rights. And
0: and the Vietnam War. Vietnam War.
1: Yeah, he was the guy that was the progressive answer to Lyndon Johnson, who was the, you know, old school establishment president. Ironically, Democrat.
0: You know, so that's different. That's thing he's running against his own party. Yeah, he kind yeah. of split away. And so John I think D- we should
1: talk about that. That's another thing that, you know, <laughs> you're looking at just politics are in complete disarray in 68. Thousands oh, yeah. of well, Americans well, are dying. Um, young men are, are drafted into war. You have race riots throughout the nation. You have one of the most important 20th century leaders, uh, MLK, just assassinated. You have a second Kennedy assassination in the same decade. Oh, the,
0: hope, the hope of a generation.
1: Yeah. The hope of a generation. It, it, I it, mean, it just, things are just literally crumbling yeah. in 1968. And then the one thing we kind of need to really talk about it is the disarray in the democratic party that is yeah. in control of, you know, in the government at the time. Which um, happens in
0: August of 68, right? It's just yeah. like re- Democrats recently, recently had their uh, convention this year, which was all on yeah. like uh, Online, it right, right, Yeah, or, it
1: just happened. It's online. Yeah, yeah. But here, the Democratic
0: uh, Party is splintering.
1: This is the crazy thing. You have Lyndon Baines Johnson, first of all, has having a rough time. I mean, this guy, before Vietnam, institutes what is known as the Great Society Program. And, which looks great on paper. Absolutely. Um, actually, if, if Vietnam didn't happen, it's a lot of those what-ifs in history, but if Vietnam didn't happen, he would have probably been as revered as FDR. He would have been the second yeah. FDR. You know, with his New Deal versus Great Society, but that didn't really happen. Obviously,
0: I mean, you have to pay for Vietnam. You can't yeah, have. Yeah, you know, I mean, wars, wars, wars are expensive. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I mean, LBJ used to wake up to chants outside the White House. LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I
0: mean, this guy was going did through a lot. Set fire to themselves on the White House lawn. Yeah. Right outside the White House. That's when he's like, I'm not running again. That's yep. pretty He's basic. like, I can't
1: do this. And that's kind of, yeah, you good point, Tom. That's kind of where I was going with this, is his own party in 68, you know, 68 primary elections, Eugene McCarthy comes out of nowhere and he's like, I'm going to challenge him for,
0: for president. Like, so you're sitting president. This yeah. would be like someone, this would be like a Republican saying, I'm going to run against Trump.
1: Yep, I'm running against Trump. It's just gonna I'm happen.
0: Trump, which you don't do. Yep. It's like a crew saying, I'm running against Trump. Like you something that doesn't happen. You don't run against your incumbent president when he's looking for re-election. Yep. You have to show that, you know, um loyalty to your party. But the Democrats didn't have that in 1968. No,
1: no, Eugene McCarty's like, I'm running and I'm gonna go against Vietnam and my platform is all about ending the war in Vietnam. And he doesn't really I mean he's first of all, he's not really a known senator. It's March sixty eight in a New Hampshire Democratic primary. Carthy gets about 42% of the vote, and Johnson wins the primary with 48% of the vote. So he won, but the slim margin of victory kind of was a defeat. Like, he knows, like, wow, my own party is kind of against me. And that's also when Robert Kennedy, RFK, is like, all right, I wasn't going to throw my hat in the ring because I didn't think it was, like you said, I didn't think it was the right thing to do.
0: Someone else is doing it. He's I like, like, I'm just know. going for it, you know? And, then, and then he does. this is the time to do it.
1: And then you have uh, shocking, you know. Ultimately, you have famous LBJ speech where Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States, who is running for re-election, all of a sudden goes on national television.
0: He says, "I will not seek and I will not um, accept yeah, as will the not- nomination
1: of my party for another he term as your president." Like, what? And
0: what? people
1: are like, "What?" Like, so he basically quit. Yeah,
0: he quits. He says, yeah. "When my term is over, I'm done. I'm not coming back."
1: Yeah, I'm not doing this. Uh, Too hard. Done. Which is, again, more turmoil for 68. It's like, wait, what? Like, you have all these people that are still for him, and they're like, wait, so so, think about it. All the people people that are pro Vietnam and their kids are in Vietnam, they kind of feel like betrayed in a sense. It's like, this guy took my kids to Vietnam, and now he's like, yeah, I'm
0: getting out. Yeah, like, like the the country's in turmoil, and the president, the guy who's supposed to help them, the guy who's in charge, is like, you know, I'm done. Like, I'm not, uh, this is too much for me.
1: That, I like mean, that, literally, that, the Democratic yeah, Party's falling yeah, apart. They're falling
0: apart, and then yeah, it really comes ahead, in, and then the people are frustrated, and that's what comes ahead in August, right, at yeah. the Democratic National Convention oh, in Chicago. Right,
1: so go ahead. So what happens?
0: Where the um, what happens basically is a lot of anti-war protesters there, and they get in a battle with police, right? Mm-hmm. And what may, and this has happened before, but what the difference is because there's so much um, news people there. There's like ten thousand protesters. Yeah, too, right? because of the because of the Democratic National Convention. All everything gets captured. Okay. It all gets videotaped. So it's all broadcast on the national televised audience. So a lot yep. of these people, for the first time, they're seeing some of this. That's what you see in the civil rights movement too. When people it's one thing if you hear about how people are getting, you know, dogs sicked at them or, you know, shot with fire hoses, and you actually see it, it's a lot different. Yep. So it's the first time a lot of people in the country are seeing this, and it led to a huge expansion of the anti-war protests. But what it also did is it really um Scare a lot of people, absolutely. And this is what opens the door for Nixon to become president because Nixon talks about this. Oh, he's totally
1: a like (laughs) beneficiary. He's like, all right, this is perfect.
0: And he says what this is, is I'm appealing to the silent majority of Americans who do not go out and protest, who are frightened by seeing this protest and this anarchy that we're seeing in the streets. So all the protesters were viewed as these dangerous radicals, right? These like anarchists, Mm -hmm. I want to overthrow the government. And if you don't want the government to be overthrown, vote for Nixon. He's a law and order candidate. Okay. Again, sound familiar? Yeah, right. Like it's the same stuff. It, it as I'm just saying, I'm just like getting these like images in my head of like just watching, you know, the speeches on TV from from the um, uh, the Trump, Trumps, and Trump supporters. Okay, yeah. again, not getting political on this podcast, yeah. but you're seeing you're just seeing the same rhetoric on both sides where one side's calling the other side radicals, or do you see the protests? Oh, they're, they're, they're protesting. They're, they're not doing it for the, uh, they're not protesters, they're thugs, right? Sending mm-hmm. the, sending in the forces sending the police to tear gas them and things like that. It's the same narrative happening in 1968 and in 2020 over different reasons. Um, but also the core reason of racial inequality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's very interesting. I mean, there is, so much that yeah that we like, we can go into with this obviously we're and just kind of you know, yeah. going on, on the surface. I and mean, people here,
1: could see this. I mean you guys could youtube this and, and there's plenty, you know, people that you know listen to a podcast too, that were alive during this time that could remember this. Oh, yeah. When I talked to some people that were teenagers or adults in 68 and I talked to them about just today and I keep on saying, you know, they're saying oh 2020, right? But they tell me, you know, this this too shall pass. Uh, they say, I lived through the 60s. I lived in 68. And, you know, we thought the world was falling apart and we got through it. At this national convention, Democratic National Convention, I mean, there's like 12,000 Chicago police officers, like over 5,000 National Guard. Talk about like militarizing it, you know? And they, you know, these police officers with cameras focused, like you're saying on them, they move into the crowd and they spray protesters with mace. They beat them with nightsticks. And there's videos of... Uh, protesters, all bloody, screaming. The whole world is watching. You know, as it, it's again, it's surreal what you're seeing. Uh, hotels, nearby hotels in downtown Chicago had to be turned into like makeshift hospitals and aid stations. I mean, this is just it's surreal, crazy. surreal. Yeah.
0: um Especially if you're an American, you hear about this stuff, but you're watching TV for the first time, especially in like you know the Midwest, yeah. and you're seeing this, what's going on. You're you're scared. You know, you, you still might have that trust in the government, and everything like that. And it's it's when then when Nixon comes and he's saying you no, know, that law and order appeal—that's what gets him elected. That's what helps get him elected. I I really feel, and a lot of historians will say this: without that riot at the sixty-eight convention, Nixon doesn't become president.
1: Yeah, I agree. I concur. And
0: with RFK, I think RFK, if he wasn't assassinated, yeah. There's so many
1: what ifs him. in history. You know, it's so but interesting.
0: But just in this year, you have, or in the in the spin of a few months. At this point, yeah, talk about the
1: first six months, right? Watch first six months, Tom, of 1968, right? 40,000 students on more than 100 campuses took part in more than 200 major demonstrations, right? I mean, crazy. In New York City, right? Columbia University, I think it was 68, it was in 68. Columbia University, in April, students protesting the university's community policies take over buildings and police eventually has to restore order. And like they arrested 900 protesters because they took over Columbia University. I mean, Surreal. And then, like, before we move on from the political aspect here, you know, then you have George Wallace kind of puts his, you know, hat in the ring, as they say. And George Wallace is a former um, Alabama governor, and he's a third party candidate, and he doesn't win. Um, He also gets shot, actually. That's a whole other story. But uh, he was a longtime champion of school segregation, uh, states' rights, um, you know, what was considered by many at the time to be very racially charged policies and he gets a decent amount of votes and that also kind of scares a lot of americans that you know there's still yeah,
0: this, people voting for this guy yeah
1: yeah like there's still people out there that you know that vote for this guy and, and want this guy absolutely again you know i actually had a few students when you know this corona thing started i had a few students reach out to me um in the last few months of the school year when we were already in lockdown and they were like I can't, you know, one student said, I can't watch TV. I can't watch the news. I, I don't, you know, Mr. Z like what, what's going on here? And I told him that same thing. Like, you know, you have to look at history and you know, look at it pointed them to 1968. If for many people that were your age, it seemed to be very, very similar as different as it is. Obviously it is very similar, you know, you and I kind of talked briefly about a couple other things that happened at 68 um, that might, I guess that might fall into, I mean, I don't know if we, well, well, one I know we could
0: Well before we get to that there's a couple another big event that I would like to bring up the the since kind of like put maybe a bow on the whole civil rights issues some of the summer mm-hmm. civil rights issues in the 60s so we have obviously leaders being killed we have the riots but we also have um protests that are taking place similar to what you're seeing just recently how the NBA that they uh, protested um uh, some of the black La- black lives matter yep. movement how they refused to play in some of those playoff games right during mm-hmm. the week this I think Friday they started playing again. And that was in October of 6-8. You actually had the Summer Olympics taken on Mexico City. And I'm sure you remember this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm talking about here with the two American medalists, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. After they win the 200-meter race, they're awarded the gold and bronze medals. And as the Star Spangled Banner is played, they bow their heads and raise a their fist in the air with a black Love. glove on it. Yep. And they are actually booed as they are leaving. Yeah, the Olympic Stadium from doing this, and they took them. They actually took their medals away. Well, they get kicked off the team yep. shortly after. Yeah,
1: um, and they're no longer able to represent the United States.
0: Yeah, two days later, they were expelled from the team, and then we were, But when they came home, they were hailed as heroes by members of the African American community. Now, nowadays, when they interview them, in interview, actually, a guy who gets a lot of interview is the um, Australian um, Peter Norman. He was the mm-hmm. Australian silver medal because he he didn't wear the glove but he also wore the same pins that they wore mm-hmm. and he supported their decision they told him they were going to do it ahead of time he's like yeah go for it you know so yeah he could think now they looked as heroes but in this time they weren't yep. they were really looked at it's like how dare you bring politics into the olympic games yeah it was like the kneeling thing you know except like, well, when we know it's on tv we're going to bring attention to our cause we're going to bring attention to the plight of what's going on in in our country they meant that as a peaceful kind of like you want to call a protest, bring awareness, whatever, however they want to say it. But yeah, it caused a lot of hatred mm-hmm. and a lot of anger that 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 they would do this. Yeah, they were like they were threatened, obviously stuff like that. And uh, it just kind of shows that you know there was just doing something like that. It's just a lot of that racial tension still in the United States, as you still have today. But uh, people were really upset by this. Yeah. Uh, just raising, raising them, doing what they did. They thought it was, de- uh, you know, taken away from the national anthem. How dare you do that? Just like what you saw, yeah, like you were saying, Pete, with the with the kneeling yeah. before football games, basketball games, all that stuff. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and what else you got for 68? Again, it seems like, I mean, again, fun facts are not fun facts, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening in 68. <laughs> Obviously, based on what we said, it was a, a terrible year, to say the least. But you know, there's you some interesting things happening, right? That may remember, not. Uh, be right,
0: we were talking about this right before we uh, yeah. started to record. But in November of um, 1968, one of your favorite shows, right, Star Trek, yeah. right, the original Star Trek series, actually has the first ever, the first time on on American television, the first interracial kiss when yeah. uh, Captain Kurt and Uhura. Uh, yep. It kisses are horror, and I think it isn't even being like controlled. They're being con- I never it saw is. this. It is,
1: I, yeah. So to make it more acceptable, even though they were completely breaking barriers, you know, um it, they were being controlled by this like uh, out of this world power that made them do it. But still, I mean, monumental in a sense, you know.
0: I know that like uh, it was on NBC. They made them film an alternate version thing because they were afraid that certain like, you know, um TV affiliates in the South particularly would refuse to show it. And then um Shatner, like uh, William Shatner, who was yeah. like really supportive of this interracial kiss, he knew what it was going to be. Um so he was, uh, he purposely like ruined all the alternative takes. So the only take that they could actually use was the was the interracial one. Like whenever they made him kiss like a white woman, he just like messed it up on purpose. Yeah. And stuff like that. like licked her nose like or something. But he was doing it on purposely just to have that. And then apparently in the episode, Kurt, I found this quote, Kurt says in the line, where I come from, size, shape, or color makes no difference. And that's what Kurt says in the episode. Kind of, you know, they, they, again, it's supposed to take place in the future, but they're kind of like referencing, you know, that Earth at some point gets over this whole issue. Absolutely. So I um, thought I thought that was kind of interesting, yeah. I agree. It's just like things like this that how like really it shouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Yep. If you think about it, like, like, like I'm sure the kids say, like, like what, "What does that even matter?" Right, but in the 1968, that's a big deal, showing us on national televised TV, right, a white man and a and an African American woman kissing on TV, like that's just like, "Wow, oh my God!" Because remember, in, up until it was actually illegal for that even to happen. Yep, it was. Look, at, look at the book. I'm sure everybody reads in his, uh, English class, right, "To Kill a Mockingbird." Yep. You, you don't, that's that's something that's not supposed to happen. Uh, it, that's not what, that's not right. That's not what society says. is Okay. You hear they're having it on TV, which is a form of entertainment, right? A form of escape. And they're making this like social like um, statement on TV. And that's, it's a big deal. It's trying of to also show them how television is evolving too, where it's not just going to be that leave it to beaver type of stuff anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just don't- no, I think that's a, yeah, it was in November, right?
0: November. Yeah, it was November. No,
1: yeah, it was November. Some of the other things that kind of come out of 68, you know, and I think that's a conversation we could be having about 2020 today. And, you know, where do we go from here? And again, I'm a firm believer that things, you know, will get better. But, you know, some of the changes, long-term implications. Uh, After Nixon wins, right? So he carries 32 states. He kind of starts this like long stretch of Republican dominance, you know, in the White House. Um, And, you know, and actually because of the White House, Um, Also the Supreme Court, as we know, the president gets to appoint judges to the Supreme Court. So you have, you know, the the GOP wins like five of the six presidential races in that period. You know, two by Nixon, two by Reagan, and one by George Bush. Not until Jimmy Carter. So that's kind of how much the Democratic Party tarnished itself with how they dealt with the turmoil that was happening.
0: You really don't start to get looked at. Well, they were by their followers, but looked at us in a positive light. They don't have that beacon. Because Jimmy Carter was a great man, but he's not seen as a great president. No, by no means. It's a still, yeah, that God. guy's still alive. God bless. He's still alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's won the Nobel Prize, I believe, since um, his presidency, the Peace Prize. Um, but really, you don't see like a big time Democratic presidential candidate or uh, president really until Clinton, you know? Yeah. Um, but as far as like popularity and as far as just like that widespread appeal, because he did appeal to the to Republicans also, so, yeah, um, especially during his first term.
1: I think that uh, I think that kind of just about wraps it up for us. Thanks for joining us, guys. And until next week, Pete signing off.
0: Tom Reska, take it easy, guys.
1: I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover
0: France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast
1: Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.